Good morning. We're going to read in Mark 12, 35 through 44. And as Jesus taught in the temple, he said, How can the scribes say that the Christ is the son of David? David himself and the Holy Spirit declared, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. David himself calls him Lord, so how is he his son? And the great throng heard him gladly. And in his teachings, he said, Beware of the scribes who like to walk around in long robes and like greetings in the market in the marketplaces and have the best seats in the synagogues and places of honor at feasts, who devour widows' houses and for a pretense make long prayers. They will receive greater condemnation. And he sat down opposite the treasury and watched the people putting money into the offering boxes. Many, many rich, rich people put in large sums, and a poor widow came and put in two small copper coins, which makes a penny. And he called his disciples to him and said to them, Truly I say to you, this poor widow has put in more than all those who are contributing to the offering box. For they all contributed out of their abundance, but she, out of her poverty, has put in everything she has, all she had to live on. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Good morning, guys. We doing okay? All right, a rowdy bunch today. Excited about that. Hey, my name is Chad Kinster. I serve as uh, one of the pastors of our church, uh, particularly a pastor and elder in our downtown congregation. Um, I serve as teaching pastor. So one of the things that that allows me to do is occasionally um, move around to the different frontline congregations and, uh, and spend a morning with you opening God's Word. So that's where I'm here today, and it's a privilege. I get to come out to Shawnee, uh, it seems like once every few months, and uh, it's a privilege to see um, what's happening in the life of, of this congregation, to sing with you. Uh, your singing is consistently uh, life-giving to me as I get to see other congregations, what they do. So, so thank you so much for ministering to me, even by your voices and your singing this morning. It's been fun to... Uh, to worship with you. We're in the book of Mark, working uh, kind of section by section, chunk by chunk uh, through this book. So if you've got a Bible, open up to Mark chapter 12, verses 35 to 44. And um, <clears throat> if you've been tracking along, you know that we've been in this section, starting back in chapter 11, where Jesus is sort of uh, in, in the final throes of his life. So where we pick up in the narrative, this is Passion Week. This is the final week of the life of Jesus. So through 10 chapters, uh, of the book of Mark, you get three years of his life, but through the last six chapters, you get the final six days of his life, right? And so we're sort of in that final section. He's been debating and arguing with religious leaders as they're coming and trying to trap him. These last few chapters, the volume has been turned up. The arguments are intense. People are coming at Jesus aggressively. Um, and we're going to wrap that section up today in, in this passage. So uh, Jesus gets his turn to speak as they've been coming at him. And so um, I think there's a lot here for us. There's a lot that's going to challenge us today. And so I want to kind of cut the introductory stuff and just get to work. Sound good? So you pray for me. I'll pray for you. And then we'll, uh, we'll see how God would shape us. Father, I pray that you would hold our attention today. And we come to you um, in the name of your son, Jesus. We've, we've sang in his name today. We've confessed our sins before him today. Jesus, it's you that gives us an assurance that our sins have actually been forgiven before the Father. And we now wanna come before your word and um, 
We've not come, this church has not come to hear me speak. We've come to hear you speak. And we believe that you do that perfectly. We believe that you do that without error. And we believe that you do that effectively through your open scriptures. And so would you help me to step in the stream today of what you're trying to teach us through this text. And we offer this prayer in the strong name of our King Jesus. And we all said, amen. Amen. Uh, well, I'll never forget the first time that I took my wife uh, on a date. We were juniors in college, and um, there was so much nervousness and so much um, uh, just emotion swirling about in, in my heart and my mind as I took her on that, that first date. We were, like I said, juniors in college, and uh, I made the mistake of, um, before picking her up that night to take her out, not eating anything that entire day, right? I had to work that entire day, and so I was caught up in the busyness of my job, uh, all the nervousness about the date at the end of the evening. And, uh, and so by the time I picked her up, I was absolutely starving. I don't know if you've ever been there or going out on a first date. It's good to just have a few snacks during the day so that you're not a complete animal when you show up at a date, right? right? So I picked her up. And I thought, you know what I want to do? I want to take her to some place nice. I want to take her to some place that shows that I believe that she's a special lady. And a place that everyone can find something that they like on the menu. And so naturally, this is circa 2005, I take her to Chili's, right? That's the kind of place you go in that situation. So I'm thinking, hey, we're going to splurge. I'm going to get... Uh, chips and, and, and skillet queso. Uh, we're going big on this deal. And here's the thing. Once we sat down, I, I wish I could tell you so much about the conversation we had that night and so much about the, the, the atmosphere of, of our newly formed relationship together. But sadly, I can't tell you about those things. All I remember is just absolutely devouring those chips and the salsa and the skillet queso. And then later when my meal came, just absolutely dominating the meal that was set in front of me. But one thing I do remember, in the midst of that whole deal, at one point, I had, um, I had reached across my plate in a kind of way that was uh, animalistic as it had been. And I had sauce all over my sleeve, Right? And the one thing I do remember is that in the midst of this date, my wife asking me this question that shifted the whole night. She just looked and she had this sort of grossed out look on her face, as you can imagine. And she just said with a frank tone, are you in a hurry? And now she, here's the deal. That's a simple enough question. That's an obvious enough. That's a, that's, a, that's a clear question that was appropriate in that moment. Not a hard question to answer. Not a difficult question. Totally fair. She didn't have to say in that moment what she was really thinking. She said it all in the frame of that. She, she didn't have to say, hey, you're an animal, and if you want a second date, you'll change your eating behavior. She didn't have to say any of that. It was all clear in the form of a simple question. And I throw that out this morning, kind of a silly example to say, all of us have had moments where a well-timed question, a perceptive question, has shifted the tone. Right? Shifted in a moment, shifted in a moment in your life where maybe what was happening foolishly in your thought patterns or your actions was sort of exposed in the form of a question. I throw that out because that's exactly what's happening in our text today. Jesus has been hunted, Jesus has been interrogated, he's been cross examined. And what's happened over the last few passages, if you've been reading with us, he's returned, he's answered far more than they could serve. 
Every time that they've thrown something out to trap him, to try to pin him down, he's actually trapped them. He's actually pinned them down. And now what's happening in our passage today is you've asked me your questions. In fact, the end of our passage last week where Pastor Pat taught was no one dared to ask him any more questions, right? But now what's happening is it's his turn. He's turning the tables. It's his turn to ask them a question. And so here's something that's actually, before we jump into it, terrifying, wonderful. Love that. That was well-timed, brother. Something wonderful and terrifying for any of you who've ever tried to deal with God, right? If you've ever tried to deal with God, you know that it's not so much that you deal with him, but it's that he deals with you. It's not so much that you question him. He's the definer. He's the one who asks the question. So in our text today, Jesus is going to preach his final sermon in the temple. It's a short sermon. And for all the attempts that they've thrown at him to trap him as a fraud, here's our, sen- here's our sermon in one sentence today. Jesus is going to uncover their hypocrisy. He's going to uncover our hypocrisy. And he's going to do it. And he's going to begin with a question. He's going to start with a question. Pick up in 35. And as Jesus taught in the temple, he said, How can the scribes say that the, son, that the Christ is the son of David? This is his question. How, how can these scribes, how can these religious leaders, these teachers of the law, how is it that they're able to say, how is it that they're able to teach you that the Christ is the son of David? This is his question if they've come at him with all of theirs. Now, here's what's going on here. These guys wanted a Messiah. The nation of Israel wanted a Messiah. They were looking for God's anointed one. Their problem was they just didn't see it in Jesus. They just didn't see it in Jesus. He wasn't doing what they wanted him to do. They wanted a political Messiah. So he was doing all kinds of things that would have suggested that he is God's anointed one, but he wasn't overthrowing Rome in the way they wanted him to. He, was, they were, oh, he wasn't overthrowing their political enemies in the way they wanted him to. They wanted a restoration of Israel and peace and prosperity. They didn't like his claims to be God. They held him to be a blasphemer. Who are you to call yourself God? Who are you to come in here and do all of these things, not overthrowing our oppressor? And at the same time, aren't you that kid from the backwoods town of Nazareth? Hey, we don't even know who your dad actually is. Wasn't that an illegitimate pregnancy? And even if Joseph is your dad, isn't he just a carpenter? Who are you to claim yourself to be God? They held him to be a blasphemer. And so he asked this question of them. Well, for all of your intelligence and for all your smarts, how is it that you're claiming that you know who the Messiah is and that you claim him to be the son of David? Now, this question might not seem big deal to us, but this question is loaded with a rich and biblical background, historical background, a background that everyone there would have understood. Their expectation is that the Messiah was going to come through the family line of King David. And they drew this expectation from the promise back in 2 Samuel chapter 7, where God says to King David, I'm going to raise up one from your family who will sit on the throne forever. This is the Davidic promise of the Old Testament. So everyone's expecting whenever the Messiah comes, whoever he's going to be, he's going to come from the line of David and God's kingdom will reign forever. So Jesus asks this question. 
It's not a question he was intending to leave open-ended, as though they're going to get the response. He's going to answer this question, and it's as though he's saying, it's my turn to speak. You've been asking me all your questions, but now let me establish the grounds of the conversation as you question my authority. So pick up how he answers this question in verse 36. It says, but didn't David himself in the Holy Spirit, so Jesus is arguing with them or showing them even what they believe about their own scriptures, that we believe about the scriptures, that it's inspired by the Holy Spirit, driven forward by God, that David wasn't writing into his own sort of thoughts and intuitions. He was writing by the inspiration of God, but it says, didn't David himself in the Holy Spirit, didn't he say this? He quotes Psalm 110. The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. And so Jesus answers the question by referencing to Scripture. He quotes Psalm chapter 110, verse 1, where David says, The Lord said to my Lord. There's some tricky language there. Let me sort of explain what's happening. What David is suggesting in this psalm is that the Messiah will most certainly come through his family line as God has promised, but he'll be so much more to David than simply his son, a future descendant that the Messiah to come will actually be divine, even God himself. The point he's making is that if this Messiah to come is no more than just a mere man, if he's no more than just a human political figure, a physical descendant from David, then why does David call him Lord? The Lord said to my Lord, Yahweh said to the Messiah, my Christ. The last time I checked, no one calls their children Lord. I've got four kids at home. Two of them are daughters. Neither of them are ever going to receive a title in my home higher than their mother's, <laughs> right? Mama's the queen of the house, and rightly so. And they're my princesses, and they'll never be more than that. But they are my princesses, but never the queen, never my queen. You see it. And so what Jesus is doing is he's lifting the veil for them to see who even David understood him to be nearly a thousand years before he even came. He was confessing that the Messiah to come is going to be more than just my son. And he's saying loud and clear to his skeptics and his doubters that were in the temple that day, and even to us in this room today. He's saying, I am the true son of David, but I'm also God. I am the true king, and just like David put all the enemies of God under his feet, I'm going to do the same, but you have enemies that you don't like to talk about that are much bigger than Rome, the enemies of Satan and sin and death. And David on his best day couldn't put those enemies under his feet, but I will do so because I'm coming with a different power. So Jesus, who is one unlike any other, you know this church, he's fully man, but he's also fully God. He's the son of David, but he's also the son of the living God. And so Jesus says, don't you believe and don't you understand your own scriptures? Why do you carry on in this hypocrisy where you claim one thing, but you don't even observe the scriptures you claim to teach? He's saying in the temple that day, don't you know what? Don't you know who is standing right in front of you un unveiling these words? And so here's what's happened, right, in this first little section They've tried to question him, but now Jesus has actually questioned them. 
They've tried to pin him down. They've tried to expose him. But what's happened is they've the ones who've been exposed. But Jesus isn't done. He's not done uncovering hypocrisy. Let's keep reading in this passage. Verse 38. And in his teaching, he said, and that's a clear line in this passage we need to grab because this is the same sermon, right? So the, the, the line in his teaching is not to say that this was some other time. This is, he just gave the Psalm 110 defense and now in that same sermon, in that same teaching, he says this. Beware of the scribes who like to walk around in long robes and they like greetings in the marketplace and they have the best seats in the synagogues and honor at feasts, seats of honor at, at feasts. But they also devour widows' houses, and for a pretense they make long prayers. He says, they will receive the greater condemnation. Now can you imagine with me for just a second how awkward this moment must have been when he said this. So he's standing in the temple, delivering a sermon. The scribes are their pastors. They're their teachers of the day, right? And he says in this moment, after proving that they don't teach the scriptures the right way with Psalm 110, he now goes on in his teaching, he says, beware of the scribes. So not only is he calling them out, he's calling them out while they're in the room. Like they're on the second row right here. I can even give you their names. How awkward this moment must have been for the people, for the room, for the scribes, for them going, wow, He's really going to come at them like that? What kind, of, what kind of gravitas does this man have, right? And he says, these men, the reason I'm telling you to watch out for them is because they like to walk around in their flashy clothes. And they make a scene in, in public and around the community with their social graces as though they're a big deal. And he says, they make long prayers in public and they give off the appearance that everything is just so in their life and they're all between the lines and everything's just sort of put together. They give this impression off. And he says, they love to manipulate their position and their reputations in the community in order to have the best seats at the best dinner parties among us. And you can almost hear when Jesus is saying all of this, the echoes of that other warning in Scripture where it says, beware that though they might have the form of godliness, they deny its power, right? That though it all might appear well and good on the outside with their external forms of religion, their hearts are closed off to God and his Christ, he says they, they actually neglect all of this stuff on the outside is happening, but they actually neglect the stuff that God really cares about. They neglect justice to the poor and the vulnerable. It says in verse 40 that they devour the homes of widows with all of this exterior religion. And Jesus says, don't be fooled by them. They will receive the greater condemnation. God isn't fooled by them, and they're not going to get away with their spiritual manipulation forever. So this awkward moment that must have happened in the temple that day turned to a heavy moment. I guarantee you, you could have heard a pin drop when Jesus delivers this. There's some speculation among scholars. There's some debate about what actually is meant by them devouring the homes of widows. But track with this, lean in with me. 
I'm persuaded that what he's talking about here is actually going to be illustrated in the following verses, where this verse leaves off with these guys devouring the homes of widows. The next verse picks up with an actual account of a widow. It's just like it continues to read forward. So pick up with me in verse 41. It says, he sat down opposite the treasury. So sermon's over. Jesus is done teaching in the temple. It's as though he walks out, maybe across the street. He turns around and he looks back at what's happening there. He sits down opposite the treasury and watched people putting money into the offering box. Many rich people put in large sums, but notice here it is. But a poor widow came and put in two small copper coins, which make a penny. And he called to his disciples and he said to them, Truly I say to you, this poor widow has put in more than all those who are contributing in the offering box. For they all contributed out of their abundance, but she, out of her poverty, has put in more, or, sorry, out of her poverty has put in everything that she had, all that she had to live on. So, so notice what's happening here. Jesus just finished putting, uh, just finished his teaching in the temple. He walks outside and sits down. And he's seeing all these people come by and put in their, their offering. And he's sitting there and he sees several wealthy people come in and put in these large sums of money. And then behind them, sort of hidden in the shadows, there's this poor widow. And it says that she put in all that she had to live on. Clearly there was something there where he was able to see what kind of gifts they were putting in. Now, if you've heard this taught before, Historically, this passage has been taught in, in one of a couple of ways. The first way is that this passage is taught as a springboard to talk about financial generosity. And we'll say, hey, see what's happened here? This widow has come and she's put all that she's had to live on there. And so she, as she was sacrificial and generous in her giving to the things of God, you too need to be sacrificial and generous to the things of God. And we make an example of her that way, right? The other way you've probably heard this taught is, now what's happening here is God isn't so much concerned about the size of your financial gifts, right? Some were giving a lot, but she gave sacrificially. What's really important here is they'll highlight the end of what happened, that she gave everything she had. And so the, the application becomes, so you give your everything to Jesus. These, these are the couple ways this has been taught. Now, here's what's interesting about that. Both of those things are taught in the Bible, Right? Sacrificial generosity is taught in the Bible. And we should give sacrificially and generous because we believe that the kingdom of God is really the kingdom that won't be shaken, not our small kingdoms. And it's also taught you should give your everything to Jesus. The problem is, though, neither of those things are being taught from this passage, right? Neither of those things are being taught from this passage. If you look at it in its context, the religious leaders are debating with Jesus, Jesus is now rebuking them for their hypocrisy and their refusal to accept him as the greater son of David. If you see it in that context, it becomes clear that what's happening with the widow giving is just the hard evidence. It's the instance where Jesus is now showing, see, that's exactly what I just rebuked them about. Now, there's absolutely something commendable about this widow. Clearly, she trusts God to take care of her. Clearly, she's doing the best thing that she knows to do. There's something we should learn from her, but don't miss the larger point. It's as though Jesus is saying, see, this is exactly what I'm talking about. This corrupt system of worship that the scribes have propped up is actually bringing oppression 
And it's actually bringing despair to the vulnerable. While many people are coming by and putting uh, money in out of their abundance, this poor widow, who instead of being assisted by the community of God, what should have happened is a scribe runs up and says, no, 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 you don't put that in. We'll take care of you. Instead of the community of God assisting this poor, vulnerable widow, she's been oppressed and deceived into thinking that she's got to do this, even give the last that she has to live on if she's going to have peace with God. All the while, she's now broke. She's given everything she has to live on, and her home has been devoured by these religious thieves. And Jesus says, beware Beware of these scribes because they will receive the greater condemnation. They're not going to get away with this. Now, peel back with me. Of all the people in Israel, of all the people of Israel, the scribes knew the Old Testament law. They were the teachers of the law. They knew the scriptures. Of all the people in Israel, they knew. And in the Old Testament, there's Three very clear, unmistakable categories that God says, I want you to care for the vulnerable. Three categories. The orphan, the widow, and the refugee, the stranger. It's like, it's unmistakable. Like there's three categories where God says, these people of all people, I want you to defend them. I want you to protect them. I want you to welcome them in. Don't gobble them up. Don't push them to the margins. Don't push them to the side. Bring them in. Make sure they're taken care of because they don't have a way to provide for themselves. The community should provide for them and be a different, a light to the nations. The orphan, the widow, and the refugee, the stranger. And so here's what's happening, guys. The scribes who knew the Old Testament law had chosen to highlight and practice the parts of the Old Testament that were a benefit to their preferences, the parts that fit their agenda so they could get flashy clothes and have fancy dinner parties and the best seats at those dinner parties and make all kinds of social graces. They chose to practice the parts of the law that fit their preferences, but the parts of the law that weren't a benefit to them, the harder parts of the law that didn't advance them, they chose to neglect. And meanwhile, the house of this poor widow has just been devoured. So from the beginning, I told you that this whole passage is about Jesus exposing hypocrisy, right? He begins the passage and he says, beware. He begins the brief, he says, beware, right? As if to say, watch out, be on guard. Hey, check yourself. This isn't just a rebuke to the scribes. Here's where this drops into your lap and into mine. This isn't just a rebuke to the scribes. This is a rebuke, this is a warning to any of us who would follow their pattern. Right? We're not beyond this. This isn't just about us reading about something that happened in the first century. Church folk are all kinds of, we're prone to this kind of stuff. So he says, beware, any who would follow their pattern, he says, beware of having the appearance of godliness, but denying its power. I actually want to rephrase and reframe that same idea in a few different ways, hoping to drop it into our chest today. Jesus is saying, beware of believing all the right things 
but you're unmoved and you're unformed by them. That's a warning to Bible Belt America, isn't it? Beware of checking all the boxes, but under the surface you're unformed and unmoved by the boxes you claim to check. He says, beware here of settling for external morality. Beware of having the appearances on the outside so that you continue to get away with someone who's coloring between the lines. Beware of external morality while internally you're judgmental and constantly comparing yourself against other people to prove to yourself and assuage your conscience that you're not as bad as that person. Beware. Beware of exchanging discipleship to Jesus for political alignment as though they're the same thing. Beware. Here's why. Don't you know when you exchange discipleship to Jesus for political alignment, it only makes you an anxious and a vicious person to those who think differently than you? They become public enemy number one, and that doesn't look like Jesus. Beware, beware of being content to have the good opinions of people when you know good and well who you are when no one's looking is not who they think you to be. I must be good because they think I'm good, so I'm good. But under the surface, you're a very different person and you know that to be true and you let yourself off because you have the good opinions. Jesus says, beware. And so when, I, when, I, when you tease it down that way and you drop the passage from out there to in here, it's not difficult to figure out why popular culture likes to make so many jokes against Christians. Like it's not, it's not difficult to know why we're such a joke to pop culture. Here's why. Because we profess powerful things. The scribes confess powerful things. The problem is, with all of our confession, with all of our profession, we're too little formed by the things we confess. And so we say stuff real big, but our lives are hardly formed by it, and so we look like a joke. We give them, we give them the fodder for their jokes. And so the reason that Jesus pushes so hard here against hypocrisy, the reason that hypocrisy is such a problem is it's not just that you're lying to yourself. It's not just that you're lying to God. Those are problems. But it's also this, is that none of us get to sin in isolation. The scribes were sinning, and it wasn't in isolation. We sin. And the reason it's a problem is it's not in isolation. Like the scribes, here's the thing, guys. We become experts, experts in justifying ourselves, don't we? We have all kinds of reasons and internal conversations with ourselves as to why we're not that bad or it's not that bad. And we start justifying ourselves to numb our consciences. And we all like to think, me too, we all like to think that there's these private areas of our life where we're allowed to do whatever we want with just so long as no one else gets hurt. 
We all like to think that, well, in secret, when no one else sees, I've got these things I can excuse myself and allow myself to do just so long as no one else gets hurt. Here's the problem with that. If we're honest with ourselves, which is really hard to do, the problem with that is that whatever you're cultivating in secret, whatever you're farming yourself out to in private, is way bigger than you. Pride is way bigger than you. Greed is way bigger than you. Anger is way bigger than you. Lust is way bigger than you. It's all bigger, and none of those things stay under the surface. Anything that you're cultivating under the surface will demand eventually to come out. And all of us know this is true because every single one of us in this room has been hurt by somebody who's acted out of the sin that they've been cultivating under the surface. We've all been hurt by other people who sinned against us. And we've all hurt other people by things that we've acted out of that we were cultivating under the surface. God designed us to be communal people. And our sin never stays in isolation. It has communal impact and effects. It just does. It, I could give multiple examples of this. Maybe a, a clear one that we're conversant with is the porn industry. Just to drop this into clarity, the reason that our sense of entitlement to consume whatever kind of sexual pleasure we would want in a moment is such an offense to God, the reason it's an offense is not just because of the personal sin involved, but it's also the fact that you're beginning to see people on the screen and people around you who, by the way, are made in the image of God. You're beginning to see them as objects to be consumed based on their sexual attractiveness or availability, whichever fits your curiosities or preferences in the moment. And whether you recognize it or not, every time a button is clicked, it gives more power and you become complicit with, the, with that industry to further oppress the vulnerable and the poor. Meanwhile, to put it in the language of the scripture, the homes of widows have been devoured. People being made to do things that they were not made to do as image bearers of the Most High God. And so Jesus lifts the veil. <laughs> he lifts the veil in this passage and for us of their pretense of religion and ours, and he gets right to the heart. And so here's where I want to land today. What do you do when your hypocrisy is exposed? What do you do? Because it's not like we can just sit in here and go, yeah, they're hypocrites. <laughs> We're hypocrites. If you're not a Christian here today, I'm so glad that you're here. Let me just hear, have you hear a Christian say, I'm a hypocrite. I'm not proud of that, and I'm not making excuses for that. I'm just trying to be honest about the bustedness in my chest. We're hypocrites. What do you do? What do you do when it's exposed? Do you remember how this passage began? How Jesus opened his sermon. He opened with Psalm 110, and he proclaimed himself 
to be the true and greater son of David who will put all of our enemies under his feet. Satan, sin, and death. Now track with this. The reason that Jesus fulfilling the promise made to David is such a big deal and the reason it's such good news for you and me is because that promise was about far more than just the throne of God enduring forever. It was about that, but it's about also far more. The promise that God would raise up one from the line of David, he says in that same promise, the one I raise up will be a son to me and I will be a father to him. Now track with this. That's good news because the base reason, the base reason that you excuse yourself in secret hypocritical patterns, the reason that I excuse myself in secret hidden hypocritical patterns is because deep down you and I fail to believe that God will really meet the deepest longings of our heart. And if that's going to happen, I've got to allow myself an out somewhere. The base reason for your hypocrisy and mine is that we don't really believe that God can meet us in our deepest longings. And if that's going to happen, I've got to give myself permission out somewhere. And so with this promise of Jesus becoming the greater son of David, the reason that's good news is because it means that the one who's come hasn't just come to defeat our enemies. The one who's come has come to make his father our father. Maybe to put it in a simple line, the one who sees through you is also the one who's come to save you. Man, the one who sees through you doesn't use his x-ray vision to shame you. The one who sees through you has come to save you. And so my question to you is this, what if you really believed? I don't know what your area of hypocrisy is, but what if you really believe that in that area where you feel like you have to give yourself permission to walk around the corner, what if you really believed that God can meet you there and satisfy you? I promise things would be different. And so the answer to that isn't, well, I got to justify myself and explain myself and negotiate myself and, you know, like kind of, it's not that bad. That's not the answer. And the reason we go to that is because that's just a quick fix and that feels easier, doesn't it? The problem is it always betrays us. <laughs> and we know that our excuses aren't true. The answer is to walk your shadows into his light. That's the answer. And you're going, yeah, but what if I walk him out there? What's he going to do to him? The one who sees through you has also come to save you, not to punch you. Not to punch you. Better than covering yourself with a patchwork righteousness that you just try to have all these explanations for yourselves, and I'm okay because... Better than a patchwork righteousness is actually being covered in the righteousness of Jesus in plain sight. You say, how does he do that? 
Here's the, here's the final words today. Broken body, shed blood, and an empty tomb. Where does my righteousness come from? How can I walk my shadows into his light? A broken body, a shed blood, and an empty tomb that promises all of your enemies have really been put under his feet. Let's pray together.